I'm really excited about this week's guest, Holly Lang, the founder of Fair Play. She's dedicated her life to making life fair for everyone, specifically regarding healthcare justice and access to healthcare for vulnerable populations. There's never been a more relevant time to talk about the inequities that people are facing when trying to get covered and trying to live healthy lives. Enjoy. C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Christina DiGiacomo, and this is Wise Up with Christina. And I'm really excited about our guest today, Holly Lang. First of all, because I really have no experience or background in, in any way in health and policy uh, and, and service and nonprofits. So I get really excited when I actually don't know something. And that's why I have her on today, because when I started to look into her work, I just found it so groundbreaking and important and worthy. And I just really wanted to give her the opportunity to tell everyone what it is that she's doing and have a conversation around that. So what she does essentially is with her organization, Fair Play, she provides strategic services uh, around health, policy, equity, and access with a focus on vulnerable populations. And really, if things need to be better in the system, Holly is the person that you call to make things better in the system. If I had a direct line to Governor Cuomo right now, I would say he needs to hire her immediately and her organization because I know that he talks a lot about how are we going to make things better. And so I'd like to introduce Holly. Holly, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm so excited that you're here. I can't wait to dig into what you do. It's so amazing. Uh, so, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm going to access my ignorance uh, yeah. and I know I, I don't know a lot about your world. I just know that it's important. And, you know, I'd love for you to just share, you know, as, as way of introduction, you know, what you're working on, what you're doing uh, right now or what you're working toward. Okay. Got it. Um, so fair play is a nonprofit organization. Um, we're still new. Uh, we are, not even six months old yet. Um, as you mentioned, we do services. Uh, we primarily provide consulting services and uh, you know, kind of support for groups that serve low income or otherwise vulnerable populations. So we think about vulnerable in a few ways. Um, it's basically folks who face significant barriers to affordable and appropriate care. So this could be somebody living in a rural community. This could be a minority, uh, an immigrant, uh, low-income populations, really anyone who's going to have particular challenges to care. Um, we do tend to talk most about low-income populations because that's just pervasive throughout everywhere, um, all countries, and particularly in North America. You see huge disparities in care between those who have income and have insurance and those who do not. And that's something that I've been working on personally and professionally for my entire career and before that, um, 
growing up low income in a rural community in South Georgia taught me at an early age just some of these challenges. So that's what we do. We, we work to address those things that we've identified and I've identified for years now. Um, and we just figure out the best way to do it. Sometimes that's through policy recommendations. And then sometimes, again, it's through working directly with the folks who are serving these populations. So clear. Amazing. I love it. So I... I mean, it, to me, it's like headline after headline after headline around people who are really suffering during this pandemic. And the people who are suffering the most are people in low income and vulnerable populations. And, you know, Governor Cuomo said, why is it that the poor have to suffer the most yeah. in these kinds of situations? And I... I know for me, there's just been a feeling of heartbreak around all of this and, and also a sense of urgency uh, around fixing or doing something about these disparities and these inequities in terms of access to care, but just in, in general, I think from a socioeconomic perspective. And you're kind of on the front lines of that right now. And so I was wondering, you know, what is this moment teaching you uh, in your work? Well, so unfortunately, it somewhat taught me that this North Star I've had forever was right. Um, and that is to be looking at these issues that are facing particularly lower income and otherwise vulnerable populations. You always want to be proven wrong when you're identifying issues and particularly issues that are facing large groups of people and continually facing them. Like this is, this isn't new. Um, what the pandemic has done is I guess it's been a bit of a canary in a coal mine for issues of health inequity for so many others. And you're seeing a lot, the, those living in poverty, those near poverty, those numbers are growing uh, and they're going to continue to grow. We're just at the beginning of that. So what it's also taught me is not only were, was I and were we as fair play right to be looking at this all along, these issues have to be addressed, but it's also showing me you know, how universal that these problems can be and you know, hopefully what that in turns goes, I'm cautiously optimistic that this will lead to changes for everybody and just teaching me on how we really can help everyone identify with what's happening in a way that creates positive change and not just further heartbreak. Hmm. Thank you for saying that. And, you know, I would think that creating that bridge for people in understanding the bridge and understanding, because I do, you know, I do feel in order for things to change, more people need to get involved, whether it's, you know, helping, you know, helping nonprofits do the work, but also getting involved in, in, with more of a civic mind and getting involved in, in local government or even just, you know, being a good neighbor or, you know, looking after or checking in on someone that, you know, they know may be struggling. I mean, I, I think there's so many ways that people can contribute because I know I, I hear what you're saying, like thoughts and prayers are great, but it, you know, it doesn't really do much to help someone when they're in a crisis and they just, you know, they're not getting what they need uh, from the system. So, you know, thank you for that. And so, so based on what you're seeing and what you're experiencing, 
Uh, can you talk a little bit about what needs to change or what will need to change a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, so just to even lay down a context, there's so much we don't know, right? And we won't know for a long time. You know, we have a lot of folks that are making some good guesses that are pretty educated. And, you know, from an economist standpoint, which is the lens that I tend to use on this, you know, we can see what the numbers are showing us and what the data is showing us and, and predict somewhat where this is going to go just based on you know, what's happened in the past. So I guess going back to that groundwork, what we know now is there's about 36 million that are unemployed. And this doesn't include people who are already out of work before this hit or people who have been out of work for a long time who are excluded from unemployment numbers. Um, we know that there's just 36 million new people that are uninsured and that is huge. That is such a huge, huge number. What that means is that we're gonna have more people that are hitting poverty and we're gonna have more people who are uninsured. So we already know as of the end of April that about 9 million people had already lost their health insurance. And that figure is just gonna spike as COBRA and other subsidized benefits run out. We know that there has not been any major state changes to policy in the last few months, um, naturally, um, to Medicaid or anything like that. So you still have states where experiencing some really high numbers that don't have any kind of expanded benefits. So we know that that's going to cause issue as you have more people who need support and no mechanism to provide that support. Um, we also know that it's hitting certain populations much harder than others, minority, poor people. Um, these are populations that tend to have less access to regular care, to doctors, who tend to have the more compounding conditions that are making this worse. They tend to have more is issues of heart disease, tend to have more issues of diabetes due to a number of factors. Um, they're also least likely to work from home if they do have a job. So you're gonna see, again, you're either making a choice, do I go to work and put my family in danger, particularly if you're in an area with high rates of outbreak, or do you stay home and lose your job? And as we're seeing states return to normal operations, this is gonna be a pretty important discussion that families are gonna be having on what feels safe and right and what's gonna be necessary in order to eat and pay rent or pay your mortgage. Where I do think that is changing already, and as mentioned before, I think it all is saying that the traditional line of thinking in many groups is now by the wayside. Uh, this is especially true on issues of poverty and some fairly pervasive political views that do impact how what happens in people's lives, like thinking about Medicaid expansion and other safety nets and different supports. This happens to always happen in states where issues of poverty are most significant. So ideas that government support is a handout or that everyone can pull themselves up by their bootstraps or that it's a failing of the person to live in poverty or it's a failing of the person to have mental health issues. I feel like that's changing already. You're with so many people that are being impact or impacted by this, with so many people falling into unemployment, not going to have insurance, et cetera, this is becoming a personal issue for everyone. And I think that is something that some of the rhetoric that surrounded lower income populations traditionally will start to slide away. And that to me is a positive in order to start seeing some lasting change. And that would be coming through either organizational policies, like how hospitals treat these patients, what services are available there, to larger policies, including like Medicaid expansion, um, federal subsidization for COBRA and other health benefits, telehealth, um, all kinds of things that impact how a person receives care. Thank you for that. You know, you and I, you know, we've we've spoken before and and had a meeting of the minds on a, on a number of things. And one of the things that we talked about 
is this notion of what's happening right now is because is like this great equalizer. Yeah. Right. And, and I had shared with you this thought about this, this great equalizer. And then this kind of undercurrent, I guess, American ideal of like rugged individualism mm-hmm. in our society where, you know, what you were talking about, pull yourself up from your bootstraps. You are, you know, accountable for your own life. And right now what is happening is, is kind of bringing that to bear and testing that whole idea out. And actually it's kind of a battle of ideologies, which is, you know, you've got on, on one side, no, we're, we're all connected. Everything is connected. And in some way, we're all kind of the same in the same boat. And when one person fails or falls, everybody loses. And so there's this collectivism idea of society, but then there's this other ideology, which is this rugged individualism and, and, you know, you, you are responsible for everything that happens to you. And in, in some measure, there's not, it's neither good nor, nor bad right. on either in either ideology within measure, right? But there seems to have been sort of this predominant idea that you're just kind of, you know, you're screwed, right? If, if you lose your job, it was your fault. Or, you know, if this, if you can't, get what you need. It's your fault. And, uh, you know, to your point, there's this now this great equalizer that's happening where people who may have once had this rugged individualistic ideology are starting to realize like, well, if it can happen to my neighbor, it can happen to me or it is happening to me. And perhaps this could be, there could be a major shift in perception of how we all you know, operate together and negotiate this world together. Any thoughts on that? No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I feel like the idea of individualism is, I I mean, it just feels like it's falling away to some degree. Um, And particularly as this continues to move forward, we realize how much we do need other humans. I mean, Zoom is getting a workout for a start, you know, with folks just wanting to see each other's faces and connect that way. I mean, I've had more conversations with family and friends in the past two months than I would have in the last two years in some ways, and particularly just the nature of how it is. And I feel like even from a social standpoint, we're just all learning so much um, that, you know, work isn't everything, that there is multiple parts of life that you know, the commute does suck and that, you know, spending time with family as much as it may be maddening at times with us all being stuck together is very valuable. Um, The absence of being able to spend time with family. You know, my mother is very high risk and if I would not be able to give her a hug and I don't know when I will. And that's something that you start to feel and start to, as a people, we're just having this human response to it that I think really does start to come back to this idea of the great equalizer and this pandemic and the positive that it is hopefully going to bring, you know, amidst all the terrible, terrible things that are happening throughout the world and in individuals' lives. I mean, just the recognition that we all do need each other and that we are humans and that we have this underlying connection that is vital and that we should do what we can to support each other and that our choices do impact each other. 
you know, I live in New York City. My decision to not wear gloves or a mask proved detrimental to somebody else because I could unwillingly have this, you know, virus and could be transmitting it. And so we're taking precautions and doing what we can, not just on our behalf, but on the behalf of others who are really vulnerable. And I feel that this is something that you're just hearing about and seeing so much more of. The other thing that I think is happening a lot right now that I I love is how many good stories are being told. Um, You're seeing a lot more dedication to good news. And you're seeing folks like New York Times, local newspapers, um, local news outlets, et cetera, focusing on things that are positive that are happening. Um, Using the old Mr. Rogers quote about look for the helpers and identifying those that are helping others and where we can all tie in as a community for me, selfishly, on behalf of those I work for, this is great news. Um, the more that folks understand that they are part of a community and appreciate and want to participate in that, the more that the issues facing those who are most vulnerable among us will be addressed. Because now it's just not this guy down the street who's taking your tax money, which is a view that many would have when you're talking about lower income populations who are relying on social services. Now this is someone who is your neighbor who you understand that maybe didn't get there because they were lazy or, or whatever, but instead there were life happens and issues happen and they need help just as this person, you, you may need help yourself at some point. So I feel like, you know, again, coming back to that idea of the great equalizer, there's so many positives that can come out of it. It's just on us as society and individuals to make the new normal better than the old normal, which I think is possible. So well said. That's so well said. And actually, you know, this is kind of a small like uh, anecdote, but I think really powerful when you were talking about uh, good news and the New York Times specifically, because there's something that they started doing that I certainly noticed. They they have a feature of like what so-and-so does on their Sunday, right? And it always used to be some celebrity or some influencer or some chef or, you know, someone who has a life that I don't have. Uh, And it was all about how they, they spend their, you know, elegant, indulgent Sunday. And what the New York Times actually started doing Uh, in the past few weeks that I noticed is how does this home health aide spend their Sunday? How does this nurse spend their Sunday? And they're profiling people on the front lines and people who are essential workers that, you know, are, are what I would think are people who are just unseen or maybe invisible or part of this kind of caste system of essential people that we take for granted. And the fact that the New York Times is now like, oh, you know what? The right thing to do is to talk about these people and how, and their lives. And I think that that's a wonderful thing that they're doing. Thoughts? Oh, I completely agree. And I mean, this also ties into, again, maybe a New York thing, but every evening at 7 p.m., frontline workers and essential workers are applauded. And, you know, a lot of attention is paid towards the healthcare workers, which is incredibly vital um, and absolutely appreciate that. But, you know, I've seen people getting off their shifts at the local key foods being applauded as they're leaving. And so I think the appreciation of people who are out there and still working and still participating in a world that's a lot of us are shut 
down from because we are working from home or a quarantine and we aren't essential workers is just is staggering. And to see national attention paid to these folks and to see what so many businesses and organizations are doing and to, you know, see the guy across the street play the trumpet for them at 7 p.m. each evening just out of appreciation and celebration, I think is is awesome. And, you know, you're raising a good thing about the um, celebrities and influencers and all, and like totally unrelated to fair play. But what, I've thought a lot about this and, you know, maybe this is like finally a decline of celebrity culture to some degree, because in some ways when you're seeing, um, and not that celebrity culture is inherently bad, but I do think what it does often is reprioritizes things for us. And as particularly for, you know, younger populations who are, you know, on social media a lot and on, um, different devices and seeing that, you know, maybe your priority should be this Gucci belt, you know, because this is what so-and-so is wearing or something, you know, that's kind of hitting into kind of the materialism that I think is inherent. Going back to your New York Times Sunday thing, one of the things that always struck me was just how name-droppy it was for really expensive things. And to where it was my least favorite part of the paper, um, largely because these are things that I, A, I couldn't afford and B, I don't want to afford necessarily. I mean, it'd be great to have the money to, but I don't think that's how I'd want to spend it. And I feel like you're seeing a lot more kind of backlash against that. I think especially as folks are, you know, recognizing that maybe there are other things that are going on. So total aside and nothing to do with fair play and the populations we're serving, but I just, I feel like that could be a good benefit too, that maybe you're know, recognizing that there are other heroes besides those that, are starring in movies or walking down a runway and that these are the people around you, or maybe your mom who is a nurse or your neighbor who, you know, owns the grocery store that hasn't, you know, raised prices and has kept everyone safe. And, and I think that that's good and important and attainable. It's something that we can easily aspire to because we have so many wonderful examples around us. Oh, that's so beautiful. And I'm going to get on my soapbox for a second because I, I do feel that our chasing of materialism, even historically, could you're the you're the economist. So you know, if I'm speaking out of turn, no. please let me know. But I also feel that our consumerism and our chasing of materialism and and that and that sort of that being our aspiration has somewhat or probably tangentially contributed to the socioeconomic inequities that we're seeing. Oh, heck right? yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, it is actually also related uh, to some extent to what you're doing and to fair play and, and, you know, the whole idea of everyone deserves a shot and everyone deserves, has a right to a good life and everyone has a right to be healthy. And, so yeah, I know I get I can get a little finger waggle. <laughs> I get a little finger waggly and a little preachy, but I, I I I do really see your point and support your point around materialism. Well, I mean, it's definitely something that I think about a lot. Um, you know, one of the roles that we provide um, and do for different hospitals is we review financial assistance policies and practices, and we secret shop a lot and just to see like. Are folks living up to what is, you know, required of them by law? And then also just the spirit of the law, which is meant to give folks who are lower income opportunities to receive, 
you know, their necessary care without fear of a medical bill that's going to drive them into bankruptcy. Uh, and often this is going to extend just beyond the emergency department. I mean, think about routine care that's going to be necessary. If you don't address it, you're going to have to in an emergency setting at some point. So really trying to build policies and infrastructures that support smart, proactive health care. And one of the things that I see so much within this is just a personal gauging of a person's, I guess, well, finances are going to definitely be brought into it. But, um, you know, I've heard before folks being denied for financial assistance because the case manager, the person that was working with them through the process, didn't like that they had a phone, for example. That's a common thing if someone has an iPhone you know, should they really be getting accessing care? So I feel like, or getting financial assistance for accessing care, I should say. Um, so I feel like it kind of, the, the blade goes both ways. And that's one of the things I've been thinking about. And we've been talking a lot with some of the folks I work with in that regards and just like, what is reasonable for people to have the materials though as well. And not that, you know, to say that somebody has a phone means that they do have the means to pay for stuff or if they have certain material indicators or maybe it does. It's just kind of like what we allow as a society to make sense, but it's such a double standard that's in place. And it would be great to see that go away too. You know, to continue on that, you know, mentioned before, you know, my family is low income. You know, my sisters neither have internet at their home, um, neither have, you know, reliable transportation, um, but both do have cell phones because there are programs that support that. And I've thought before about how views of materialism and views of belongings really do shape how we perceive others. And it's, like I said, it's so, it's so interesting how it is. And then, you know, ultimately they're being pinged for being low income enough to qualify for programs that provide these services. And just because they have this phone that was given to for free and subsidized, they will be denied. And when, you know, meanwhile, you could be having someone right there that just finished a shopping spree on, you know, Amazon or something like that, making that determination. So it's, it's kind of like what's good for us isn't, isn't always how we apply it to others. And hopefully this will kind of hit that as well. Not sure if that made entirely sense, but I think you get where I'm going. Like just the, the double standards that we hold in place for this. And that if you are poor, then every single thing you do should be going towards paying your doctor and nothing else and no other life components. And I, I feel like this is going to, this is going to shift as well. Yeah, I absolutely, you know, it's so funny because um, I have a family member that, that posts memes like around the whole notion of someone who is low income having a cell phone. Like you shouldn't have a cell phone if, you know, why do you have a cell phone if you're, you know, you're, you're poor. And, and it's almost, it's just like this judgment that it is like, first of all, the way the world is operating right now, you have to have a phone. Right. Like how much more do you need to take away from a poor person when, until you're satisfied that they're at the level that meets your standards of low income? And it's just, it, to me, it's kind of, it, it's that double standard that you're talking about. But it's also, you know, again, this sort of war on, on the poor ideologically and from a judge, judgment standpoint, that's just, you know, I feel it just doesn't, it's not productive. It doesn't help the situation. And it's also not really truthful. And so I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, to your point, like things are shifting and, and attitudes are changing. 
Yeah. Hopefully so. It, you know, and it's it's interesting. The phone thing is such a pervasive thing. It's such a good example because you just, I, I didn't even know there were memes about this out there, but I'm not surprised because it's strangely something that comes up. I don't think I've ever worked with a healthcare system that is not asked if that can be a viable exclusion. You know, if folks have some A, then they should get excluded, um, which you can't do that. You can't use visual assessment to determine if somebody is Um, eligible for this or financial assistance or not. And that's one of the things that I think is important to think about. So, you know, there is this bias against low-income populations having cell phones, um, but there's also a move to defund the, you know, what meager funding is already provided to the U.S. Postal Service. So, uh, you know, like, so what are you supposed to do? You You know, like smoke signals, you know, carrier pigeons? I'm not quite sure. It's, and this is what scares me when you see some of this stuff is that, you know, the Postal Service is a very vital tool for lower income populations. Um, you know, it's if you don't have a bank, you're not going to get direct deposit or you may not want direct deposit because you may have some withdrawals that happen just due to cash flow issues. Um, you know, Medicaid is often verified through um, by confirming your address through the mail. Um, most social services are verified through a mailing address that you do receive mail and that you have to respond to. Uh, you know, and again, going back to kind of this bias against using technology or having access to that, I do worry about some of these policies continuing to get more and more exclusionary, really hitting like low income rural populations um, and really low income populations overall, just due to, you know, it cost what, uh, 55, 60 cents to send a letter through the mail and about a hundred times that through UPS. Um, so you know, it's, or I'm, yeah, UPS and FedEx, actually. I think their their starting point is what, $12, $13? I think FedEx, maybe even $17. So, I mean, you're seeing these things that if they continue in response, it's just going to be, I don't know, figure, it worries me that it's going to further isolate a population that's already pretty isolated. That would probably be my biggest fear with this, would be okay. just defunding these types of programs and then still holding against alternative mechanisms like phones, et cetera, against these populations. Wow, Holly. I mean, you've just given me and I'm sure everybody who's listening here a lot to chew on. I I really want to find a way to get this interview into Governor Cuomo's hands because you clearly know what you're doing. And I really feel that you're the how, not only just like the strategy, but the how. So there's this you know, just to kind of wrap all of this up, there's the, we need to do this. We need, you know, we, we got to change things. We need to do something. Right. Uh, And then there's the policy level, but then there's the implementation level and the execution level. And then the real sort of like on the ground kind of considerations and, and things that need to happen. And, and I know my language is very, you know, not of your world, but that's the work that you're doing. So, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm just so glad that you're doing what you're doing. I'm so glad that you're here. And I, I am in huge support of Fair Play, your organization. Um, how can people find you? How can people find out about Fair Play? I want, I want everybody to know who you are and where you yeah. are. So um, thank you, first off, for all of this. This is really great to be able to talk about these issues and um, particularly with someone who gets it. And I, I'm really grateful and appreciate that. 
Um, anyone who's wanting to learn more about us can just go to fairplaystrategies.org. Um, we have lots of ways to contact. Almost all of them come back to me. So, you know, we really encourage people to reach out. Um, one of the things that we want to be very mindful about is that we aren't living in our own vacuum that we've created. Um, you know, to this end, I spend a lot of time at hospitals, physically, um, at charitable clinics and other orgs. We really want to hear from others who are impacted or not and who have ideas. So that would be one thing I really encourage anyone listening. Please reach out and let me know what you're thinking, any suggestions or ideas you have. It's not going to be solved by one person or one group's ideas alone. This is a collective issue that has to be solved collectively and an ongoing way. And so I feel like the best way to do that is just to have you know, everyone have a stake in talking about this and, and helping figure this out, even if it seems like something small. So that would be my ask of, of your listeners is just to reach out, please. Um, like I said, fairplaystrategies.org. Um, we always welcome your thoughts and feedback and support or volunteering. Um, that's another thing that we have a lot of opportunities for. And this is going from helping design graphics to, you know, research, anything like that. And we often have um, projects pop up that do have opportunities that provide some payment too. So we really want to hear from folks who are interested in working on these issues. Holly, thank you for everything that you do. And thank you for helping us wise up. Great. Thank you so much. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.